Well, good morning, everybody. How you doing? Good to see you. Hey, if you're a guest with us uh, this morning, thanks so much for joining us. My name's Sean. I'm one of the pastors here. And, uh, you know, it is a beautiful day today, is it not? I mean, we got to enjoy this green while we can. It's on days like this that I like to take a ride down the American River Trail. Any other cyclists in here? Anybody like to bike ride? A few years ago, I took a ride down to Old Town, Sacramento. And it wasn't this time of year, it was during Christmas time, but it was still beautiful weather. And as you pull off the bike trail, you kind of go over these railroad tracks, and I turned right, and I noticed that there was this huge crowd waiting for the Polar Express, because they were doing this little ride down there. And so they had all these little kids and their parents, and it was such a a great um, environment. There was music playing, they had balloons and cotton candy, and and I sort of just got mesmerized by it as I was riding along which is not a good thing if you're riding a bike to get mesmerized by something else and get out of focus. I was thinking, man, my eight-year-old really loved that. And, and I didn't realize that I was getting closer and closer to another set of train tracks. And as I turned and I looked down at my front wheel, I realized that I had fallen into this rut between the iron track and the pavement. And I thought for a second I could get out of it, but... No, it wasn't going to work. And, and that's when everything kind of went into slow motion. My feet went up in the air. My head went down. The world was upside down. And all I could think of was two things the whole time. One is this is completely embarrassing in front of that whole crowd that's watching me right now. And the other was, how are my earbuds staying in? This is awesome. The music just kept on going. It was amazing. And I did this full flip. I thought for a second I was going to have the perfect 10 landing, but I landed on my backside my bike kept tumbling off in some direction, and so I, I, I got up, and I, I looked over at this crowd of people, and the little kid's eyes were just huge, and I didn't know what to do, so I just I took a little bow, you know, <laughs> got my bike, rode off in humility. It was great, and I thought, you know, that's how life is sometimes. We're cruising along in life. We're enjoying the view, and, and it's going great, and then all of a sudden, We find ourselves in a rut, and our life goes off flying in directions that we never really intended it to go in. If you're just joining us this morning, we've been in this series at Lakeside Church called Saint Almost. We call it Saint Almost because... We're almost. We're not, we're not there yet. You know, none of us is perfect. We're on this journey. And if you're like me, then oftentimes you're not even close, you know. And, and it's, it's the tagline is the trouble with Christians because we get in trouble sometimes. We get ourselves into ruts. And we're walking through this book in the New Testament in the Bible called 1 Corinthians. The Corinthians were this ancient church in the city of Corinth. And they had started really strong, but they ran into some problems. They had gotten themselves into some ruts. And so they, they wrote a letter to the Apostle Paul who had started the church. And they said, Paul, you got to help us out. We have some issues here. And we've learned about some of those issues over the last several weeks. We know that this was a church that struggled with unity. They were a divided church in, in, in all sorts of different ways. It was also a church that struggled with growth. They struggled with spiritual formation, spiritual growth. Paul called them an immature church. And even though he also said that they were extremely gifted, they didn't lack any gift, many of them had yet to move from the kids' table to the grown-ups' table. And we know that, that spiritual gifting doesn't 
translate automatically into growth, right? Into maturity. We know that, you know, uh, whether you can have a whole bunch of knowledge and attend a lot of Bible studies and go to church and, and have all your theology right, it doesn't mean that you're necessarily mature because we know that maturity is based on character transformation. God wants a hold of our hearts, and it's not, it, it, it's not like it's easy, and so, and so uh, this, this journey is a, is a difficult one, and, and so they're, they're asking for help, and Paul, kind of like a parent, is saying, hey, uh, let me help you guys out. Let me point some things out, some struggles that you have, and, and one of the major things uh, Brad just mentioned last week is that they were accommodating certain behaviors, certain sin that was hurting the church, not helpful to the church, and we, as we progress through the book, we see thing after thing, and by the time we get to chapter 8, which we're going to look into a little bit this morning. I believe we find the thing that they were struggling with the most of any of their problems, and there were a lot of them. They struggled to believe in the resurrection, but Paul only gives one chapter to the resurrection. They struggled to believe um, in a lot of things. They struggled with their worship gatherings. He gives a, a chapter to that. They struggled with their spiritual gifts. He gives a couple chapters to that. They struggled with marriage and singleness, and he gives a chapter to that. And it's not that... This issue was necessarily theologically more important than something like the resurrection. It's just what they struggled with. He gives a lot of ink to this issue. We find three chapters devoted to this challenge that they were facing. And it's a challenge that I believe, 2,000 years later, the church still struggles with this issue. And the issue is, how do we deal with our differences? What do we do with our differences? Specifically, how do we follow Jesus as followers of Jesus? How do we live in healthy Christian community in light of the fact that there are so many different opinions about what following Jesus looks like? Have you ever wondered um, or, or have you ever noticed how many different opinions there are amongst Christians? I mean, there's such a huge spectrum, whether it's how to do church or, or, or how to, you know, uh, believe theologically. We, we have differences over right and wrong about what we should be doing, what we should not be doing, about what we have the right to do and what we don't have the right to do. And sometimes we'll say things like, hey, you can't tell me what I have the right to do. These you know, I've, I, I can do this. I have a friend that, that says sometimes, don't shit on me. I didn't say it. Some of you guys just opened your eyes. You just woke up in the sermon. She'll say, don't shit on me. Don't tell me what I should do. And, and, and a lot of times we, we kind of dig in. And there's not a lot of healthy discourse. And sometimes I believe that the church mirrors our culture. Have you ever noticed in our culture that there's a lot of words flying at one another, but not necessarily a lot of healthy dialogue. One person will be on this side of an issue, another person will be on this side of the issue, and really the way that it works in our culture these days is it's a zero-sum game. We, we want a winner and a loser when there's a difference of opinion. And Paul writes to this church that's in the same situation. They had some huge differences of opinion on what was right and what was wrong. And Paul wants to raise the level of discourse. He wants to raise the level of conversation and make it something that's constructive and not destructive. 
And he does all of this for them. Uh, let me just add a little, a little nuance. He does all of this knowing that the ancient Corinthians, just like us, had an oikos. Every single one of them had 8 to 15 people where God has strategically placed them in their lives. And so they're living this thing out. They're coming into the church, and they're coming from all of these different backgrounds, different religious backgrounds, different cultural backgrounds. Corinth was like a melting pot, uh, different socioeconomic backgrounds, and they're all coming to the table of Jesus. And do you think that there's going to be some problems when there's all sorts of different backgrounds coming together? Sure, there's going to be a lot of challenges. And Paul says, I want you to work this out. I want you to figure it out right in front of your audience. Oftentimes, um, there's opinions about Christianity in the church and the ancient Corinthians had opinions about this new thing called Christianity. They thought these people were out to lunch. And really their opinions landed in one of three categories and I think this is probably still true today. One category is that they were just, they they thought this is just boredom. And they kind of yawned and went on their way. They thought, you know, I don't know what you guys are doing. You seem kind of weird. We're not going to get involved in that because we have all these other priorities. We don't have time to waste our lives on whatever you're doing over there. Sometimes the reaction was anger. They were frustrated. They didn't like some of the things that the Christians stood for or what they were saying or what they were doing. And so there, were, there was reaction to it. And sometimes they were just ridiculed as a joke. Boredom anger, and ridicule. And oftentimes, that's how our culture responds to Christianity in the church. I don't know if you realize this. You probably do. But Christianity has a bit of a reputation problem these days. There's a bit of an image problem. And sometimes, and I think, I think a lot of times, we're the ones responsible for it. Because when we fail to be the church to one another... Even in the midst of our differences, when we fail to be the church, the world looks at this story that we are telling and is just not compelled by it. They're not compelled by the story that we're telling, let alone the story that we're living out. And so Paul is dealing with this. And he's trying to encourage them. And it's not like it's easy, right? I mean, this is really, really difficult stuff. Trying to figure out how to live in unity. How to live amongst one another with the differences that we bring to the table often. It's, it's really hard. This idea of growing up. This idea of spiritual maturity. It's messy. And it's, it's confusing at times. And it's, it's, it's difficult. It's a little bit like, if you can remember, maybe you're older or maybe you have younger kids. It's like raising little children. It's just messy and confusing and difficult. In fact, I don't know why they don't give moms and dads a wetsuit when they leave the hospital because it's just going to get messy. I mean, there's this thing, moisture, you know, little kids and moisture. I don't know what it is. You give them a sippy cup, it doesn't matter. They figure out a way to spill it all over the place. Have you ever given a two-year-old a bath? I mean, you're the one that gets the bath, right? It's just messy. When my daughter, who's 15 now, was a year old, she, she had a cold and it was messy. And there's 
there's the green going everywhere, and there's the yellow going everywhere. And I remember holding her one day, and I'm walking around, and I'm just, I'm just trying to help her, and she just was so pathetic, and her head is kind of bobbing back and forth, and she's kind of got this, oh, going, and it was just so sad, and I felt so bad for her, and, and I kind of leaned my face in. I didn't want to get too close, but I kind of leaned my face in, and, and she just looks at me, and her eyes are all watery, and, and she's got her head back, and I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry, baby girl, and then she just leans her head back, and she sneezes right in my face, just sneezes, and it just goes, I mean, it goes in my mouth, it goes in my eyes, it's all over my face, and then she buries her head into my chest, and she just rubs it all, uh, she just rubs it. It's messy, and it's difficult, and parenting little kids, parenting at all doesn't work without love. And the church doesn't work without love. There's this beautiful lining all the way through the letter of 1 Corinthians. Sometimes it's implicit and sometimes it's very explicit. In in fact, by the time we get to chapter 8, Paul's going to get really clear with this. And then when you get to chapter 13, he's going to write one of the most beautiful pieces about love that exists in all of the scriptures, I believe, in anywhere in literature. In fact, if you've never read the Bible, I bet if you've been to a wedding, you've heard part of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which is all about love. Paul says, how do we live together in Christian unity, even in spite of our differences? We love each other. We work and work and work at loving one another. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. So if you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to open to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And as you're turning there, I just want to remind us a little bit about the fact that Paul was a Pharisee. A Pharisee at that time was a religious leader of the day. This was Paul's background. He had kind of come out of that system. And so Paul, as a good Pharisee, as a good Jew, would have been familiar with the most holy prayer that a good Jew would pray every single day. And it was called the Shema. The Shema is the Hebrew word for hear. And it was was a prayer that they would pray every single day. It came from Deuteronomy chapter 6. And it just went like this. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord our, your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. In fact, when asked what the greatest commandment was, Jesus said, Well, how do you read it? And the person said, Well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he says, There it is, right there. Jesus simply points to the Shema. Paul would have known this. He also would have been familiar with the fact that Jesus said that the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. And so for Paul, love informs everything that we do. Every action, every relationship, all of our life ought to be informed by love. And this is what he tells the Corinthians. This is what he's getting at because he's got two big camps in this ancient church and they're disagreeing with one another. And they've written and they've asked him a specific question that we're going to get to in a minute. It was a cultural issue that they were dealing with and there's two camps in the room and they get this letter back from Paul and they only got one copy of it because that's the way that it worked. And they read it publicly. 
And so you can imagine everybody starts to lean in a little bit. What is Paul going to say about this issue that we're facing? So look down at the very beginning of chapter 8, and this is what it says. Now about food sacrificed to idols, and this is their issue. He says, we know that we all possess knowledge, and you'll notice that in the NIV, at least, it's in quotation marks, which is great because the translators have picked up on the fact that this is something that the Corinthians said to Paul. Hey, Paul, we all possess knowledge. So some people got a, got a hold of some parchment, and they wrote him a letter, and, and they're kind of advocating for their side. Hey, we all get what's going on here, Paul. So Paul's repeating this back to them. And he says, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think that they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. And Paul begins to put things in perspective. You have knowledge? Okay, be careful how you use your knowledge. Because what it's really about is being rightly related to God. And then he's going to unpack this, and he's going to unpack it, and he's going to unpack it. The way that Paul often writes is, it's like a rosebud. It's this tightly wound um, flower that hasn't opened up yet, and he'll pack all of his theology in just a few verses. And what he does with the rest of chapter 8, and the rest of chapter 9, and the rest of chapter 10, is that flower opens up into bloom, and he begins to share how this looks and how it works. They said, Paul, we all possess knowledge. Look down in verse 4. It says, so then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world. Again, he's repeating some things back to them. And that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, and indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. And, and he gives them this great theology, but then he kind of turns a corner here and he says, but not everyone possesses this knowledge. In other words, not everybody is at the same place in their journey. Some people are down here. Some people are back here. The, the, the discipleship path wanders at times. Not everybody is on the same page. He says, some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. This progress that they're on, that they're making, it begins to be destroyed, defiled. You see, Paul believes that love ought to inform everything that we do, but he's writing to a culture in this ancient city where knowledge was key. Knowledge was so important because knowledge for them was a status symbol. I shared a few weeks ago how this is a status-shame culture. And knowledge was one of those things that if you had knowledge, you had high status. And if you didn't, then you were held in a lower status, looked down upon. And in this room, there were two camps. There were those that thought they had the knowledge, that they they got it, and they did have some good theology. They had some good knowledge. And then there were those that were struggling. They came out of a, a bit of a different background than these guys over here. 
Knowledge, it, it, it was a huge thing. It came from their philosophers. It came from their religions. There were actually a set of religions called the mystery religions. And, and, and if you were part of the mystery religions, then, then you tried to get this secret knowledge, this special key to life or key to the afterlife. And if you did, then you would be blessed. And you were kind of, again, held in that higher esteem and not... You didn't feel the shame that other people felt. And so there was some shaming going on in this ancient church. And for some of them, they were feeling the pain of this. Because oftentimes our disagreements are emotional ones. They're psychological ones. They're deep, deep relational uh, disagreements, and it causes a lot of pain. I mean, I, I don't know about what your background was, but some people, you know, you come out of a background and you come to Jesus, and, and things don't just change right overnight. Now, for some of you, you may be able to think back and go, yeah, I remember when I trusted in the Lord, the past was in the past, and I just marched forward, and it was all great. But for others of us, and this is the way it was for me, it took a while to kind of um, put away my past and some of the, 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 the pain and the destruction of, 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 my, of my past life before I trusted in Jesus. And so it's a process, and it doesn't necessarily happen overnight. And, overnight, and it, it requires a lot of patience and understanding. And so in this church, there were people in this ancient city who were being really hurt by the actions of others. Some people were saying things like, well, hey, we have the right to do these things. But just because we have the right to do something doesn't mean that it's helpful, correct? I like how N.T. Wright talks about this because uh, it's easy for us 2,000 years later to kind of just pass over this. N.T. Wright says, Several of the Christians in Corinth before their conversion, which was quite recent, had been regular worshipers in the shrines of idols. They knew what went on there. And once you had shared in that dark but powerful world on a regular basis, perhaps for many years, it would be difficult to separate part of it, the meat, from the whole thing. And so say that you wanted to go out for dinner and, or go get some food for your family, and you, you didn't grow up in one of these shrines worshiping and that sort of thing, and you went to the local Bel Air or Rayleigh's, most of the meat that was hanging there was probably used in a ritualistic religious ceremony. And so some people, because they didn't come from that background, they, they felt, oh, this is, I, I can participate in this. But other people, there was a connection there. That was part of their past. And they're trying to put their past in the past. And they're, so they're struggling with this. And T. Wright goes on, he says, years of teaching, prayer, and wise help would be needed to cope with any element of the old package deal. Otherwise, it would be disturbing to see Christian friends, I like how he calls them friends, who didn't have a background in worshiping idols, eating that meat. So you had the one side saying, look, we all possess knowledge. We realize there's just one God. Let's just get over it and move on. And you have the other side go, going, we're stuck. This is not working. And it's destroying the community of faith. And there's not unity at the table of Jesus. Let me ask you a question. What would you do if you were Paul? I mean, what would you do? How would you advise? How do you advise people when there's such opposition at times and it runs deep and it's emotional? 
How do you mediate that? As usual, Paul surprises them. And in eight words, he confronts all of their issues, the entire problem, and he kind of refocuses them. He says, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. In other words, love must inform everything that we do, and it must inform our relationships most of all. You see, Paul's not anti-knowledge. He's all about knowledge. He was a Pharisee. He understood Greek philosophy. He understood the religions of the day. He was into knowledge. He just didn't want to see knowledge used and leveraged or even ignorantly hurt others. And so he says to these early Christians, hey, if you think you know something, maybe you don't know in the way that you ought to know. Yeah, your theology, maybe it's all correct, but you're not knowing in the way that Jesus wants you to know. There is a way to doing relationships that's helpful. And there, there are ways that are hurtful. And he goes on in verse 3 and he says, look, what it's about, as I mentioned earlier, it's about rightly relating to God. Because when you do that, you start to see yourself for who you are. And you get a clearer perspective on yourself. And then you get a clearer perspective on others. And then you are able to love others as you love yourself. So it's really about our relationship with Jesus, and everything flows out from there. And Paul will spend the rest of chapter 8, and all of chapter 9, and all of chapter 10 unpacking this. And so what, what I'd like to do is, for the rest of our time, just give you three simple practical things that you can do in the midst of your oikos, those key relationships that you have. And it's not rocket science. For most of you, it's going to be a reminder, but I hope that your heart will be stirred up by way of reminder to put into practice what it means to have love inform your relationships. Here's the first one. Simply prioritize people. Prioritize people because people matter to God. Look down in verse 8. Paul says, But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat. And no better if we do. He redefines the argument. Hey, let's take the whole meat thing out of the picture for a minute. Let's talk about the priority of drawing closer to God. Neither of you are getting closer or further away because of what you eat. In verse 9 he says, be careful, however. And so he starts to lean over to this group that has all the knowledge, right? Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Now, I'm glad, I just, I have to say, I'm glad that I live in a country where personal freedoms are taken into account. And I know that there's always a tension there, you know, I'm, but I'm glad that we have this thing called the Bill of Rights. I'm glad, for example, that I have the freedom of speech, that I can say well, just about whatever I want to say, and, and, and that's okay. But the, the thing is, is should I say exactly what I want to say? In other words, is it helpful to do that? And this is what Paul is, is, is telling them. Make sure that it's helpful, not hurtful. In another book, in Ephesians chapter 4, he'll say, Hey, don't let any unwholesome word come out of your mouth, but only which is useful for the building up of others. So be careful what you say. In verse 10 he says, For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all of your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed 
to idols. In other words, your behavior can encourage and influence others. Verse 11 says, So this weak brother or sister, this this fellow Christian for whom Christ died, is destroyed by your knowledge. Their progress in the faith, their maturity in their faith, begins to be torn down because of somebody else's behavior. And then he just, he ups the ante in verse 12. He says, when you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Ultimately, all sin is against Jesus. And so he takes this radical approach. He says, therefore, if what, I ca- if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again. Do I have the right to? Absolutely. Do these people need to grow up in their belief and their theology and, and, and maybe in their progress? Probably. But that doesn't matter to Paul. Paul says, I'm going to give myself to others. We say that in our playbook, by the way. If you're new around Lakeside, we have this thing called the Lakeside Playbook. It's all about our culture and what we aspire to do and what we aspire to be. And one of the things that we say is that we live by giving ourselves to others. This is the way we simply want to do life. We want to prioritize people because people matter to God. We often say, what about my rights? Paul says, give them up. Because isn't this what Jesus has done for us on the cross? On Good Friday, we're going to have a service that evening. And last year we had one, and this room was packed from side to side, and it's going to be a little bit darker. And we're going to focus on the cross. Because before we focus on the celebration, the explosion of the empty grave, and we say, yes, Jesus is alive, and he can change our lives, we are going to focus on that amazing love that has been poured out for each one of us through Jesus dying on the cross. Paul says, give up your rights. In Philippians, he says that that Jesus emptied himself. He gave up all of his rights, and, and this is what the incarnation was about. He came to us. He didn't wait for us to get our act all cleaned up, but he simply reached out in love. And he doesn't control us, he doesn't manipulate us, he doesn't force us to respond a certain way. And what he says to us is, do that, go and do likewise. When you're in disagreement with somebody, when you're struggling in a relationship, reach out regardless of how the other person will respond. Now I'm not talking about not having healthy boundaries and all of that, I'm simply talking about living incarnationally to the best of your ability with the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Paul gets so radical with this. Look down in verse 19 of chapter 9. In the next chapter, Paul's talking about prioritizing people, and, um, and he just gets really radical with it. He says, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. Paul will go through chapter 9 and he'll point out the fact that, hey, Corinthians, I gave up a lot of my rights with you. And as an apostle, as somebody that started the church, he had certain rights and they knew it. And Paul just reminds them, hey, I gave up my rights for you. I've been living incarnationally with you. And this is what I want you to do. And he's so radical about it that he decides to cross all sorts of social boundaries and barriers and cultural boundaries and barriers. 
Down in verse 22, he says, To the weak I became weak, to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I might share in its blessings. For Paul, it came down to that simple truth that Jesus loves every single one of us, and he invites us into an eternal relationship with him. He says, Come to me, all those who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. And Paul longed to see people introduced to Jesus and that life in Christ. People matter to God. That's number one. Here's number two. Again, it's simple. It's not rocket science. It's simply practice a lot. Every single one of us has an oikos. We get to to put this into practice every single day. Paul was so serious about this that in the last part of chapter 9, he gives us a little autobiographical information on his approach because he was radical about it. And he starts to use a sports analogy. It's March, right? We're March Madness. So so this ought to uh, resonate with some of us. In verse 24, he says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? There's only going to be one team on top of that bracket at the end of it. He says, run in such a way as to get the prize. In other words, run in such a way as to win. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training or practice. They do it to get a crown that will not last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. There are eternal consequences in this whole thing. So Paul disciplines himself. He says, Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. He had a vision. He had a mission. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. He had a focus to his life. He says, No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave. So that after, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Paul wanted to share in the blessings of having people meet Jesus and experience transformation. Loving others takes incredible discipline, and it takes good old-fashioned guts. It takes courage. When you love somebody and when you live incarnationally, you will be misunderstood. You will be taken for granted. Jesus says, do it anyway. Paul says, do it anyway. Prioritize people, plan to practice. And the last one is really simple. Just prepare to give all the glory to God. At the very end of chapter 10, he simply says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Ultimately, we live for that audience of one. And we reach up to God in worship, and every single thing that we do throughout every single day and every single relationship is an act of worship to God. Do we get it right? No. God is so patient with us. Are we almost? Yes. We're, we're almost. We're not there. But God is patient with us. And he gives us the guidance and the power of his spirit to be able to actually work this thing out day by day, year by year. To love one another. There's a great exercise that I want to encourage you to do later on today sometime. I want to encourage you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Just sometime later, you find yourself alone, pull it up on your phone. And wherever you find the word love, or wherever you find the word it, at least between about verse 4 to about verse 8 or 9, just insert your name. 
it starts out by saying, love is patient, love is kind. So the way I, I would do this later on today is I would say, Sean is patient, Sean is kind. And if I did it out loud, my wife would scratch her head and go, really? <laughs> and it's a, just a great way to kind of look at yourself and go, hey, how am I doing in this area of loving one another? Prioritize people, practice all the time, and give all the glory to God. Would you pray with me? Father, thanks so much for your incredible love and patience with us. God, as we work our way through this letter, uh, time and time again, we find that the things that the church was struggling with 2,000 years ago are the same things that we struggle with now. Lord, people are people, and God, you call us into this place called the church to the table of Jesus from all these different backgrounds with all these different viewpoints, and you tell us to be one. And then you say the key to that is to love one another. And God, that is easier said than done, and we need your help, we need your power, we need your guidance, but we are so up for it. We want Lakeside to be a place where people can experience your love from the very first second that they enter into a relationship with somebody from Lakeside, uh, a program that Lakeside does, no matter what it is, that they would experience the love of Jesus right from the beginning. So God, would you lead, would you guide, would you help us? And we'll be careful to give you all the glory. All the glory goes to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.